Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 84 and audio season four, episode 23 of Music Is Not A Genre. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, whether you're listening or watching. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. Or if you're more into audio than video, you can support it at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. And as always, my public hub, where you can also support and subscribe, is at youtube.com slash nickdematteo. That's spelled D-E-M-A-T-T-E-O, in case you uh, are just listening and don't feel like reading. So let's get right to it. Uh, this is a really interesting, uh, slightly different episode here because I'm not focusing on just one artist or one interview guest or what have you. The topic title is box sets. Do we even care anymore? Now, those of you watching, you can see that right here in front of me, I have, for, to the best of my knowledge, because I'm not super organized at the moment, every box set that I own. And initially, as you know, I usually just pick one artist uh, and delve into that artist and try to give as much detail about that. And I do, at some point, plan on getting to just about every one of these box sets, uh, in some cases individually, in some cases collectively, such as the one with the Beatles. There are several Beatles box sets here. But at the moment, I'm not speaking about one specific artist. I'm speaking about box sets in general. So initially when I formulated this podcast, it was kind of to kick off the box sets and talk about is there any relevance to them anymore since most people don't buy physical music much at all. Do, uh, you know, anyone, does anyone even interested remotely in getting box sets of any kind. But then I did some research because I like to give a little background and you know, talk, I'm talking about a topic, I wanna to know more about the topic. And I discovered a whole hell of a lot, uh, not as much as I would have liked to, there's actually not, no one's ever done, I guess, that I know of, a complete history of box sets. If anyone out there is a writer and wants to do that, please go for it. Uh, or if you'd like to donate to this podcast, I would be happy to devote my days to researching any subject. And in particular, in this week, this subject here, box sets. Let me go to one other comment here, which is last week I interviewed Steve Erickson, 
Hopefully you heard that or saw that. Very interesting guy. He always brings up interesting words. He's a writer himself, so that makes sense. And he brought up the point that technology often drives music development. It is an issue that I dedicated an entire podcast to a year or two ago. And when I did, I focused on the fact that types of instruments drive the changing sounds and styles of music, such as when amplification became a thing in the early part of the 20th century, electric instruments more towards the middle part, synthesizers, the 60s, 70s, especially 80s, uh, recording devices of every kind and how they have morphed, digital technology, uh, especially through the 90s and beyond. And if you think of all of those technologies, you can tie each one of them to a big change in the world of music. The synthesizers, electronic music, and you know, beatboxes, drum machines, things like that. What I overlooked and what we often overlook is that the format, the way in which music is delivered to people also has a hand in shaping what that music becomes. And the reason I bring this up is because the topic this week, box sets, when I did some research, I uh, realized that, or I guess I discovered, that box sets used to be the rule and not the exception. And here's why. Early on in the development of recording technology, and you may know this, the first widely disseminated format was the 78 RPM, 78 revolutions per minute, disc, 10 or 12 inches. And at most, depending on how you grooved it, it could fit three to five minutes per side. And that influenced two things. And first of all, let me say, and I was shocked by this, that the use of the term box set in the, this context was first recorded in around 1894. I wasn't able to find out more information on, was that specifically about a box set of music or was it about books or things, you know, some other media, but that was kind of cool. You, you know, something that you think of as more recent has been around that long. So anyway, back to the 78s. When people started buying recorded music, it was people who could afford you know, machines, the turntables, what have you, and people who were music connoisseurs, in a sense, who were willing to spend on new technology. And those people, by and large, listened to classical music that was extremely popular, was one of the popular music styles at the time. And if you know anything about that, you know, that style, that type of music, you know that most pieces are much longer than three to five minutes. So in order to sell a recording of a symphony, say, to the masses, you would need to break it up into chunks of three to five minutes per side and multiply. So let's say you had a symphony or, or something like that that was around 45 minutes long, or let's say 40, just to keep the math simple. And at most, you could do five minutes per side. That's eight sides, which is four discs. So what I'm getting at here is, in order to sell this type of music, you, need to, you needed to sell it 
in a group of discs or a box set. It wasn't called that at the time. There's another term for that, which will shock you. Uh, you know, that's you know, sensational people who do podcasts and things like that. This will shock you. Uh, but it would shock me. And I will get to what that other term was for a collection of discs like that. And so that three to five minute runtime per side drove the fact that most of what was sold up until a certain point was like that until pop songs, popular music songs, uh, you know, uh, chansons and, and blues and, and, you know, leader and things that were much, much shorter that were easier to sell because you could do one per side and that was that. And that is also largely the reason why pop songs, by and large, have been limited to or are generally on average three to five minutes in length because the technology would not allow for more than that. So this 78 RPM becoming the, the most widely you know, disseminated, uh, you know, shellac, I think is what they used, really drove the early development of pop songs point blank. And that was echoed when vinyl came in and 45s came in because it's about the same amount of time per side there. Dep again, depending on how you groove it, if you want higher quality, fewer grooves, etc., then those songs continued to have to be that length because of the limitations of the recording format. So then came, so that's two things that the 78, that, that, was, that were driven by technology. Then in the 40s, late 40s in particular, when 33 and a third started to be sold and vinyl started to become a thing. And that meant that you could fit more music per side. I read somewhere about 20, maybe 45 minutes total for, for two sides. So 20, 23 minutes-ish, 20 to 23 minutes. Which if you think about it, so many of the albums that we've ever bought or heard are under that amount of time. Some are much, much shorter, but most albums, especially up until a certain point, were not longer than that. Keep that term in mind also, the term I just used, I'm not telling you. And in 1948, Columbia issued the first commercially sold 33 and a third disc, 12 inch disc, and it was, drum roll, a box set. Why was it a box set? because it was an orchestral piece. And the only way to fit that orchestral piece into one you know, thing that you could sell, one item, was to divide it up into its sides. And I assume it was a pretty long orchestral piece, or it might've been a set of orchestral pieces. I do, I do not remember. You can go ahead and look that up, <laughs> which is what I did. And that's why box sets have existed since pretty much the beginning of commercial uh, recorded music, because they had to. And even afterwards, so what happened then is they, they sold this in 1948. It's a collection of discs, which they called an album, because when you think of that term, whether it applies to a collection like that or a collection of photographs or anything else, you think of a collection. You think of more than one thing. So that term was, had, had been applied for a while to a collection of discs. 
What then happened was artists and the record companies thought, oh, well, we could sell more and do more with music by releasing only one disc of music. And eventually, fairly soon after, that single disc came to be called an album. So what I'm saying is for a few decades, the term box set not necessarily being used as widely, the term that was used was album. And then eventually that came to mean just a single disc. So then they had to kind of retro, a retronym, I believe it's called, retrofit that term in the, you know, 60s and 70s, especially when artists start to put, started to put out more than two sides. They put out four sides or six sides. They would call it a double album or a triple album, which is funny because, you know, a decade or two prior to that, an album consisted of more than one disc to begin with. So I thought that was interesting. Did it shock you? I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. And so here we are in the, you know, 50s and 60s. Recorded music has been around for a while. And record companies started to realize that they could make money selling their back catalog. This is something that I discussed, I believe, when I was uh, talking about the episode about greatest hits albums, I believe, I'm pretty sure, compilations, things like that. And it makes sense for the record companies. It in some ways helped the artists or at least the publishers and the people who own the rights to the music. But it was also good for the fans because they got to discover maybe music they hadn't heard or have all their favorite songs of one artist in one place or have a collection of their work in one place. And so the, the record company started to issue box sets. Now, listen, I'm pretty good at researching. I'm pretty good at just searching in general and finding answers. And I looked for this. I couldn't find when the first box set of that type was released. And I assume it was on vinyl. And maybe they were so ubiquitous at the time that there's no real significance to the first one that was released. I have, I have no idea. Like I said, I couldn't find that answer. I found a, a subsequent answer, which I'll get to, but let's assume then that for a while, possibly in the 50s, but certainly 60s, and very, very much in the 70s and beyond, and 80s, let's say, uh, box sets were released on vinyl. And then when you hit the 70s, I believe, especially on cassette. And you multi-disc, multi-cassette, whatever it was. But those were box sets, collections. Let's say in the 70s, you got a collection of cassettes that were all 50s music. I'm pretty sure, you know, or I have a double album out there, which no, that's not a box set. What is the definition of a box set? I believe it should be more than one album, but it should also be in a box and you can fit a double album in a sleeve or in one single jewel case. Uh, yes, you can. And so those were what we came to know as box sets. Now, what I could find out was that the first CD box set ever released was in 1985 and it was Bob Dylan's biograph. So at least there's some fact that I could get something concrete on about box sets. It's kind of crazy to me that I'm talking about this topic and don't, you know, I know more than I did, but I don't know as much as I would like to. And again, would love to research it or anyone who has researched it or has done any type of writing on it, please shout out, let me know, because I'd love to know more about this. 
And so that takes us to me, you know, and this collection. And when I started to buy box sets myself. And so the first box set that I ever bought is down here at the bottom. It was this Led Zeppelin box set. I want to say it was 1990 in that area. And at the time I had known Led Zeppelin, but I didn't know all of their material and wanted to know more about it and more than just the hits. This box set was perfect. I tore through it and listened to it so dozens of times, absorbed it like crazy, and eventually came to, you know, later on, probably the digital era, listen to all of their albums. And I plan to do that again in the next year or two as well. But that sold me. I was like, oh, this is what box sets are about, and I'm totally into it. Now, that wasn't the first box set I ever owned. It was the first CD box set I ever bought. You'll have to go back to this one back here, which I'll lift so you can see the title. It's called Listen, Edition, whatever, I can't read it. But that it was a review, kind of a collection of very early classical music. So uh, Plain Chant and Renaissance music and all of that stuff broke. I believe it might have gone up further than that. But the interesting thing about this and, you know, you people who are watching on video, especially on Patreon, but anywhere, get a treat here because I'm going to open it up. And the interesting thing about this is that they are all what? Cassettes. Yeah. And... I did not choose to buy this. I had to buy this for a class I took when I was getting my music degree at Rutgers. But I'm glad that I did. I'm glad I still have it. I don't think I've listened to it since then. But it's the kind of thing that is, you know, cool to pull out. And, and it's a collection that you don't really see. And I'm actually going to try to find out if it's online anywhere, if I can listen to it digitally. And anyway, there we go with that. I honestly didn't buy that many other box sets. As you can see, this is not a very extensive collection of box sets. It's eclectic, but it's not extensive. Uh, I, I up at one point had about a thousand CDs and I have hundreds of cassettes and, you know, I don't know, 100 or 200 vinyl and 45s and all that, even 78s. But for box sets, I mean, let's count for nine, 10, 13, if you count the cassettes, not very many. Baker's dozen. I love donuts. And so this, again, is not a very extensive collection, but I'm going to go through them a little bit just so we can kind of get a sense of the, you know, the eclectic nature and why I bought them and all of that. And the Led Zeppelin we talked about. I didn't necessarily put these in order. This here, the Sugar Hill Record Story, was just essential for me when it came out. I had been into uh, hip hop since hip hop, you know, was first put on recording, or at least since the song Apache, and never looked back really. And at this time, I believe it was in the 90s, I wanted to know more about the history and couldn't find everything because there was no digital streaming at the time and MP3s were relatively new. And please forgive me if I have the release date of this wrong, but that's, I believe, when it came out. And so I needed this. And it's amazing. If you can look this up anywhere, the Sugar Hill Records story. If you know anything about Sugar Hill Records, the Sugar Hill Gang, who was not actually from Sugar Hill, which is a neighborhood in Harlem. Um, 
you know, like sort of between Harlem and Washington Heights. Uh, but they were from New Jersey, which I talked about in the Smithereens episode. There are cuts on there that you would never hear anywhere else. And that's one of the great things about box sets is that if it's done right, there are cuts you'd never hear anywhere else. It's not just that it's all in one place, which I do love. That's what I like about something like Patreon or, you know, the, the people I follow there. They send everything that they do to your inbox. So it's collected all in one place. It makes it easy to digest and easy to find things. And that's what box sets do. A friend of mine, who's a huge music fan, got the, got me this Atlantic Rhythm and Blues collection, which was 19, uh, what did it say, uh, 47 to 74. And that was, of course, Atlantic Records, R&B music, but more obscure things. Things that, you know, you wouldn't readily know. Uh, no Motown, of course, that's a different record company, but you get the idea there. And... Man, that was a left field thing. I love that he got that for me because he knew that that was something that I would be interested in. And that dude's name is Kevin, and he's a big fan of Sondheim and sad that the guy died. That's that's all I'm saying about that. But that was a wonderful gift. And then uh, let's just go you know, up the chain. I'll, I'll lump these together. So we have uh, the Abbey Road, which I honestly have not listened to or looked at yet because it was a recent gift. Uh, 50th anniversary. We have the Beatles or White Album, 50th anniversary. When I got that, toured through it. We have that, you know, entire Beatles collection of all of their, you know, major releases and a couple other things, which is a wonderful box set to have. And there are plenty of other Beatles box sets out there. I actually plan to do an episode on Beatles books because as anybody knows that one of the bands where you, there's a glut of information and material and as big a fan as I am of theirs, I don't think there's a reason to do a, you know, one episode per release. So, uh, unless at some point in the future, I decide to break down their albums or something. So I'm going to lump those books together, but that's kind of what I'm doing here with these box sets. It, they're great kind of overviews they have the original material remastered, but then they have all the B, you know the B sides and outtakes and singles and things like that. Absolutely worth diving into, and if you have the money, and that's something I'm going to talk about, kind of bringing it around to the topic of do we even care anymore a little later on. And then if you go up the chain here, this is a box set uh, I've got to show you because I just love the packaging. It's probably my favorite packaging, and it's it's got like. Almost kind of an S&M thing there. It's a pleather, but meant to be leather. And it's all goth music. So it's a collection of goth music, which... If you don't, you know... If you have a passing interest in goth music, this is still worth getting just because the packaging is so awesome. And you open it up, it's even better. And then, yeah, Ken Burns. Jazz. Good uh, review, again, kind of, of the uh, overview. There's a word I keep forgetting that I want to use and I cannot, a survey, I guess, survey of jazz uh, in general. It, it doesn't dive deep, but it's a, just like the documentary, it's enough of kind of an encapsulation of the history of, you know, early and, and mid-period and slightly later period jazz that you get a good sense and there's some great cuts on there. And then, yeah, The Cure, Join the Dots. Uh, I'll buy anything The Cure puts out. They're supposed to put a new album out this year. I hope they do. 
And um, that one in particular had things I had never heard, et cetera, et cetera, just like any box set. But the funny thing about that one is I couldn't understand, like, were they being clever, join the dots? And it's like so many things between Britain and the U.S. And that is that is just another way to say connect the dots. So if you ever see a, you know, connect the dots puzzle in Britain, it's called join the dots. Yay, Cure. Uh, right above that is probably my second favorite packaging. It is called What It Is, Funky Soul and Rare Groove. So just like Atlantic R&B here, it is a collection of lesser known material. And in this case, in the funk realm. And I believe it's 60s and 70s. Uh, I've been looking for this recently online to see if, you know, Spotify and all that. I don't think it is there. And that's a little disappointing because it's a great collection. Now, yeah, I can just put it on my, you know, CD player and listen to all of these. And I think I probably will at some point. But, uh, you know, something you do when you're doing housework or something else around the house or if you've got guests over. This is actually a really great collection. And the fact that it exists at all is a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, just something, just something I like. I, there's also... That phrase, which is a, was a very common phrase for a really long time, is something that I used for an album and title song of mine a little while back. And it was inspired by not this collection, but by that phrase. Uh, I think the collection came out a little after that. And then if you're going all the way over there, Terrible Weatherman pointing uh, under the Beatles thing, you have the Nirvana box set, probably my third favorite packaging that I own because it's metal. And, um, you know, just beautiful, really well done. And listen, Nirvana is kind of becoming like the Beatles at this point where you're going to find so much material on them. But I think that that's, you know, maybe not a place to start because it's a little more extensive than that. But it's a it's a this good second place to go if you want to own physical material from Nirvana. And I'm going to, again, kind of link this back to the topic here but don't want to buy every single album, go for that. That, was, that one was pretty awesome. And then finally, right next to me here, one of my other favorite bands, The Who, 30 Years of Maximum R&B. So that gives you a sense of when it was released, the 90s. And it's, again, a great kind of survey of their stuff. And it's a pretty, you know, like the Led Zeppelin, Sugar Hill, Atlantic R&B, as far as how it's put together, it's a pretty standard, like when you think of box set. You're either going to get something shaped like vinyl, even though these are all CDs, or you're going to get some kind of rectangular thing like this, like this one, or like the Beatles over there. And so nothing all that special about the packaging, but, uh, you know, again, absolutely worth the purchase. And that brings me to the final point here, which is that... Why bother with any of this? Do we even care? And who does care? Because clearly box sets are still being sold. I mean, everything's still being sold. There are musicians who are putting, musicians have put out music on vinyl since long after vinyl was not the primary, you know, mode uh, format there. And but the one thing that musicians didn't do for the longest time was put out music on cassette. Now musicians are doing that again, which I love. 
because even though there's some superiority to vinyl in certain ways, I was a cassette baby. You know, the, most of the music that I listened to in my formative years uh, came from cassette. I mean, certainly a lot of vinyl, but I have a much larger cassette collection. But let's face it, you know, yes, everyone puts stuff out on CD still because they're very cheap to manufacture. But everyone now, especially since uh, the rise of first MP3s and then streaming, doesn't really go rush to the music store to buy music to listen to. The difference today is that people, when they buy music, the vast majority, I'm not saying everyone, but most people, buy it to own it the way you would, say, choose Oh, I like I like this author. I'm going to read this book on the Kindle. I love this author. I want the hardback. There's nothing special about it. It's not a collector's edition or anything like that, but I want physically to have it in my house to be able to look at it and say I loved that or whatever it is and and have it in your hands. People still do that. There's there, you know, even though I stopped buying CDs mostly in 2011, I continued to buy Prince CDs and uh, U2 CDs, I think, because they're two of my favorite artists, and I wanted to physically own that material. And so, brings me to box sets here. Most box sets are sold, and, and I'm gonna argue that box sets are the most popular form of CD at the moment. It doesn't necessarily mean that they sell the most, but they're the most, let's say, significant form of physical music at the moment because a lot of work still goes into putting them together, to making them enticing to buy, to giving you things that you couldn't get just finding a playlist online. For a perfect example, any of these Beatles, you have the original recordings remastered. You Again, with any good box set, you have your besides outtakes, whatever, alternate takes. You also have booklets that by themselves could be sold as wonderful things with just tremendous text and explanation and history and lyrics and uh, dates and illustrations and photographs and all of that put together in a way that makes it worth buying and owning beyond just listening to the music. Because I'll be honest, I did make an attempt when I was listening through to the White Album here to listen on the actual CDs, but at a certain point I was like, what am I doing? This is on Spotify. So I physically read the book and and read along with the music because the book you can't get anywhere else, but I listened to the music via streaming. And then again, some of it on on CD. I'm not. I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet with this Abbey Road and whether I'm going to pop it on the CD player or not. I think I might just for fun, and also because the quality is a lot better than what you're going to get on a streaming service. But my point being is this kind of just circles right back around to the beginning of box sets. You know, more than a hundred years ago, the beginning of you know commercial recorded music, which is that it's a boutique item. You know, the average person in the, you know, 1900s, early 1900s, was not running out to buy recorded music, partly because of what we talked about, them being collections or albums, you know, box sets. And so they were considered kind of boutique items for a while until they became more widespread and affordable. And now, 
I don't know of a box set really, you know, worth buying that's under 50 bucks. And for a lot of people, that's a lot of money. You know, uh, if you think about spending 15, 20 dollars, you know, used to be on a, on a CD and still very similar. I think you can get them for cheaper now. Even then, that was considered outrageous in some ways when you can stream music you know, for a few bucks a month and listen to thousands or tens of thousands of songs or whatever you can fit into your time to consider spending 50, 100, 150, 200 bucks on a box set, which is just a limited uh, quantity of what you're getting. You have to really love the artist. You have to love how it's put together and you have to have the money for it. And that to me is what makes it a, a boutique item. In fact, it's like I said, this Abbey Road is, was a gift. Uh, it's because I didn't, I wanted it, but I had other thing, other things to spend money on and didn't want to spend money on that. And thank you to, uh, Cheryl and Lee for giving me that, but, uh, I wouldn't have gotten it myself, not, not because I didn't want it. And so, yes, we do care. Do we really care anymore? Do we even care anymore? We do, but not all of us and not for the same reasons, for some of the same reasons for wanting a collection of something from our favorite artist or favorite type of music, survey of, you know, funk or R&B or goth. But at this point, because we can find almost all of that online, although not all of it, some of these cuts that are on these box sets are still not on streaming services. Some are still not even on YouTube, which is a shock to me because almost everything else is on YouTube. So that, that's another reason why they might be worth getting if you're that into this. And, you know, I don't know. I think maybe that answers the question that I posed at the beginning. We sort of care and sort of for the same reasons and sort of for different reasons. Box sets to me can be, uh, they're, they're an endeavor because you have to spend the time digesting them. But I also think that challenge is worth it. And it's one of the reasons why my band Rec's latest release is itself a box set. It's not a physical box set. I can make it that if you want me to, but right now it's just digital box set. It's five albums called The Weird Objective. And it was a survey in its own way of all of the kinds of music that I enjoy and wanted to develop that didn't necessarily fit into the parameters of a normal rec electro power pop album. But I wanted to show that all of that music still connected. Music is not a genre, things connect. And put it under that umbrella name, The Weird Objective. Uh, sympathy for the Weird, Syzygy for the Weird, Symphony for the Weird, Syncope for the Weird, Synergy for the Weird. 32 tracks, 30 songs, a handful of covers, mostly originals, uh, but all newly recorded material so that it could all be digested at once. Pick a song, enjoy the song, but the challenge I put to you is go find, I will put down the, you know, playlist, the link to the playlist and the link to the info page that I created and both links and go ahead and listen to the whole thing and read along with the notes that I put on that info page the way you would with an actual physical box set and you get some sense of the enjoyment of it. Uh, do you own box sets? Are there any box sets that are special to you that you've had forever? Do you still buy box sets? Do you care about box sets anymore? 
at all. What do you think are some of the best box sets in history? This one here, Led Zeppelin, is usually in that list. I'd love to know everything you know and think and feel about all of this, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for spending this time with me, and I will talk to you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.